Hello and welcome to Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. My name is Marco Visconti. My name is Lisa Pruden. And my name is Rose Eva Forbes Jenkins. And we will be your hosts for this evening. Thank you for tuning in. On today's show, we're discussing Indigenous feminism with Gwicha Gwichin scholar Crystal Fraser. Crystal Fraser is a PhD candidate in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta, who is researching Inovex's residential school system and its lasting harmful legacy. Crystal has also recently released a list of 150 acts of reconciliation that she created with postdoctoral history researcher Sarah Kormaniski. The list was published online on August 4, 2017, and this date marks the last 150 days before the end of 2017. The list is a direct response to the celebration of Canada's 150th birthday, which has largely been protested by Indigenous peoples as a celebration of settler violence and attempted genocide. But in asking a settler Canadian to collaborate on making the list, Crystal Fraser hopes to rekindle a national dialogue about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's official calls to actions by empowering us to practice reconciliation in our everyday life. If you're interested in reading the whole list, you can find it at archivehistory.ca. But we'd like to read the first 10 acts for you. Here are 10 acts of reconciliation from Crystal Fraser's and Sarah Komarniski's 150 acts of reconciliation. Number one, learn the land acknowledgement in your region. Number two, find your local reconciliation organization. Number three, if there isn't one, consider joining together with others to start one. Number four, attend a cultural event, such as a powwow. And yes, all folks are invited to these. Number five, purchase an item from an indigenous artist. For instance, if you're interested in owning a dream catcher or a pair of moccasins, find an indigenous artist who can craft these items for you and provide you with the information about these special creations. Number six, Download an Indigenous podcast, like Ryan McMahon's Red Man Laughing, or Molly Swain and Chelsea Vowell's Métis in Space. Number seven, read an autobiography written by an Indigenous person. A couple of ideas include Augie Morasti's The Education of Augie Morasti, Maria Campbell's Half-Breed, and Minnie Adola Freeman's Life Among the Kalanat. Number eight, find out if there was a residential school where you live. Number nine, memorize its name and visit its former site. Number 10, watch CBC's Eighth Fire. Bonus number 11, choose one plant or flower in your area and learn how indigenous people use or used it. That was 10 acts of reconciliation from Crystal Fraser's and Sarah Komarniski's list of 150 acts of reconciliation. Once again, if you'd like to read the complete list, you can find it at archivehistory.ca. Now we're going to hear from Crystal Fraser herself. Earlier this year, Autumn Schnell caught up with Crystal and spoke to her about her research regarding Inivik's presidential school system and why residential schools are a feminist issue. Let's take a listen. Dringwinzi, my name is Crystal Fraser. I am Gwichia Gwichin originally from Anuvik and Tree River in the Northwest Territories. Great. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Let's get to know each other. Well, 
at the University of Alberta here. I am a PhD candidate in the Department of History and Classics. And my research is focused on the history of residential schools in Inuvik, Northwest Territories, between the years of 1959 and when the last residential school closed their Grolier Hall in 1996. Um, And this is kind of a family history for me. I've had some family members who went to residential schools. and have also felt the intergenerational effects of that. Um, So now getting to you a little bit more, what does Indigenous feminism mean to you? Wow, well, I could talk about feminism all day. (laughs) Um, Indigenous feminism actually has a lot of meanings. Um, I think back to our history as Gwich'in people. We had very strong women who uh, led our communities as as political leaders. Um, also, our societies were pretty flexible uh, as far as gender and sexuality went. Um, we were a matrilineal society. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of cases of, of women having several husbands and vice versa, um, very flexible social rules. But for being an Indigenous feminist today, I think that we have to try and unpack it more, add a little bit more nuance. Um, So even though in Indigenous cultures, you know, uh, we do want to make ample space for um, fluid relations and two-spirited people. We also have to understand that um, a lot of things are, are intersectional. So the way that we think about race and class and gender and, and ableism yeah. um, in order to be a good feminist, so to say, <laughs> yeah. um, I think that we have to be supportive of all those things. Okay, that's really cool. And what are some acts that you personally do that you would say make you an Indigenous feminist? Yeah, well, I don't know about you, but, (laughs) you know, I just kind of think being an Indigenous woman today in the 21st century, um, you know, living in Canada, that's kind of like a political act in itself. Oh, yeah. Because as we're going through, you know, Canada's 150th birthday, and we're seeing all kinds of celebrations um, uh, that actually cost, um, you know, an incredible amount of money. Um, We still have various challenges in front of us, clean drinking water on reserves. You know, about 60% of Indigenous women are victims of sexual assault. Um, Or even like the missing sisters. Yes. So, I mean, right now we're seeing this inquiry start to unravel. Um, So I think that as long as we can give people gentle reminders, um, if we can interrupt hegemonic narratives that are really meant to marginalize us, um, I kind of see those as as everyday acts of of feminism and resistance. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. How are residential schools a feminist issue? I mean, for sure, residential schools are a feminist issue. Like, one of the things that I think about feminism um, is that we really want everyone to be treated um, 
according to what they deserve, yeah. right? Like, I mean, when I talk about intersectional feminism, um, race is certainly one of those factors. Yes. And I mean, one interesting thing actually about Grolier and Stringer Hall is that even though they were residential schools, there were a few white children um, who resided there. That being said, they would have also been affected by hostile policies. However, the whole system was not designed for their elimination. Um, So, I mean, if you think about how the Canadian nation state was constructed um, and then expanded into the north, um, Indigenous women have kind of always centrally been one of the main threats. Um, They were kind of, you know, constructed as as bad mothers unable to look after their children Um, and then you get other social factors into the mix like like alcohol um, Mm -hmm. you know things that really didn't exist before exactly all kinds of new factors that we were expected to cope with Mm -hmm. Um, and and especially in a new vic it was this grand plan of trying to move families off the land and into town. Yeah. Um, and for the first time ever, you have a liquor store that I'll say is owned by the territorial government. Yeah. Um, and so that caused a lot of problems. Um, and I mean, I think one of the unique aspects about the Northwest Territories is, you know, the last school closed like 20 years ago, yeah. 21 years ago. It's not that long ago. No. And it's, it's still... It's still pretty fresh. Yeah. It's still pretty fresh up there. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's a ton of like language revitalization yeah. programs, um, on the land programs. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the other aspect that certainly would come into play for feminists is that former residential school students and survivors um, and their families are are still coping with a lot of trauma. And a lot of that trauma we are now seen um, with uh, social services and the removal of children from from their families. Yeah. Certainly, um, Cindy Blackstock and others have suggested that this is a new form of of obviously removing children from their families. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How does your research tie in or tie into and consider feminism? Well, that's a really interesting question <laughs> because I've been interested in feminism for. A long time, probably about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And actually, as I was preparing for this interview, <laughs> I, I I thought, I need to reflect on, like, when and how I became a feminist. <laughs> yeah. And I really can't put my finger on it. Yep. But I remember being, like, 12 years old and saying, I'm not going to change my last name when I get married. Yeah. So that was kind of, like, my first feminist um, outburst, That's I think. so funny. I did the same thing when I was 12. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean... <sighs> As I went through my BA and then my master's of arts, like uh, I re- always wanted to take like a feminist approach and include gender studies. Yes. Um, and I'm actually working on one chapter right now that looks at indigenous bodies at Grolier and Stringer Hall. Really? So like h- how how bodies were kind of wrapped up in the colonial framework of assimilation. Yeah. Um, 
and specifically about women, like these are residential schools that were open throughout the 1960s, the 1970s, so not yeah. not that long ago. Um, and women at these institutions had to have forced monthly pelvic examinations. Really? There was um, at Grolier Hall a giant chart on the wall that tracked everyone's menstrual cycle, like for everyone to see. Um, of course, you had That's- to you had to ask for pads. You weren't yeah. even allowed to use tampons. Um, yeah, and really? um, yeah. So very. I wonder, I wonder why all those arbitrary rules were enforced. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it was for. You know, basically the federal government and and colonizers to, um, you know, gain control over someone that they thought was pretty dangerous, yeah. indigenous women, right? True. I guess we, we were so powerful. We were threatening mm-hmm. their project of expanding the Canadian nation state, so... Um, so yeah, some very interesting material. Um, yeah. Lots of programs like around venereal disease. Really. Um, and then of course, uh, in my research, I get into, you know, sexual assaults and stuff like that um, that happen both at at the residential school, but yeah. then also just more broadly um, in in Inuvik. Okay. I know, like in the South, we hear about because it was a boarding school, there were really high sexual assault rates. Is it the same in Inuvik? I would say even more so. Really? Okay. Because um, Grolier Hall had close to 400 cases really? that were brought forward in the early 1990s. Okay. Um, and the RCMP basically interviewed everyone yeah. and then whittled, whittled it down to 23. Okay, so they... Because they really felt that those 23 cases could win in court. Okay. Um, did they end up getting to the court phase? They did, yes. Okay, and, and like Probably half a dozen people have been charged okay. um, and sent to prison. But there was also a, a Grolier Hall um, legal case. Yeah. And uh, that was negotiated with the um, Roman Catholic Church, okay. but also the Canadian government. And yeah. that Grolier Hall case actually set the framework for the Truth and Reconciliation oh, Commission. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. That's cool. It is. I would have never guessed that. What motivated you to get started with your research? You know, I kind of have this long, long story that yeah. I will shorten for our purposes. <laughs> uh, but I basically came to university at, at kind of a late age, you yeah. know, I didn't really finish high school till I was 23 or 24. Yeah. Um, and and I just came to university with a blank slate and wanting a new start um, and actually found a really great mentor in history. I, I started out in political science yeah. and took a history course and found a great mentor in history. Um, and I just thought, well, let's let's give this a shot. Yeah. Um, and as as I wrote my MA thesis, um, you know, I I knew that as someone from the north, as someone who is Gwich'in, yeah, um, that I just really felt like I had a contribution that I could make. Okay, and yeah, so I mean, like, it's all kind of about reciprocal relationships and about giving back. Yeah, um, and you know, as someone who is Gwich'in living in the Edmonton area, you know, I can't practice my culture every single day. Yeah, there are things I can do, but I can't do everything. It's hard to be active in a community that you don't live in. Exactly. So I kind of feel like that I make my own contribution back to our culture through my research. Uh, What were some findings that stood out to you right off the bat? 
when you were starting your master's thesis or starting your PhD thesis? I'm not really sure that that there were many surprises because, yeah. like, I grew up in Inuvik and I had a good understanding of the local history. Um, but one thing that was really great is that I went up north and I did about 60 interviews with people. Okay. Um, and that was such such an honor and a special time. And, I mean, um, the hospitality in the north is always, like, awesome. Yeah. And... Um, People are just so supportive. I mean, I guess maybe that kind of surprised me is yep. that, you know, I, I knew people knew what I was doing, yeah. um, but they were willing to go out of their way and talk to me, yeah. give rides, give meals, like kind That's of lovely. like, yeah, it was really wonderful. That's great. So it was more of like the experience aspect. Yeah, the experience of being a researcher and, and going home to start your project. Also, what was your master's thesis in? My master's thesis looked at fur trade journals. Okay. So I looked at, like, the journal of Alexander Mackenzie. Yeah. He, he was the first one um, to arrive among the Gwich'in. Um, okay. I guess Mackenzie yeah. Delta. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And uh, John Franklin and a missionary named James Hunter. Okay. And so what I did was I took these journals, um, and he, I didn't even have to have to go to the archives. Yeah. They're just at the library. And I looked at the ways in which they talked about Indigenous women in the North. Okay. So it was more about representations, yeah. like who these women were through their own lenses, yeah. like of of the explorers and fur traders. And one thing I found, like especially with Alexander Mackenzie's journals, mm-hmm. is that he didn't write them to like nine late Nine years later. Oh, really? When he was already back home in in Britain. Okay. Um, so I'm not sure how much you can remember about Indigenous women yeah. nine years later. Yeah. Um, and, of course, like the editorial processes and stuff that they go through. Um, so I concluded that what we actually get is is a snapshot of, of what a white British dude um, thought yeah. about women. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. Now, turning this on to another page, what were some pre-colonial constructs of womanhood? Like, of course, I know about Gwich'in best. Yes. Um, and we have a number of um, historical accounts and stories and legends about women. Yeah. Um, so specifically, we have practices uh, around our moon time and menstruating. Okay. Um, and we hold like a certain kind of power once we start to do that. Yes. And there's actually a pretty famous story of um, a little girl who who was uh, walking down the beach and she was wearing a hood um, so she wouldn't look at her father or her brother um, as they went off on their hunt. And uh, she accidentally did. And they turned to stone. Okay. Um, so very powerful representation yeah. of, um, of what we can do, I suppose. Yeah, shows our strength. How did residential schools affect this conception of womanhood? Residential schools and Christianity and colonialism kind of all go together. Um, So, you know, when our ancestors converted to Christianity, um, you know, about a century ago, all kinds of conceptions like around um, polygamy, 
all of that would have been no longer okay. Like yeah. to have several husbands or wives, mm-hmm. also more of a patriarchal uh, kind of society. So, yeah. yeah, like social relations would have emerged from that. Yes, and I mean, I think it just in in general the like the partnership among families also would have changed okay. because now you have families who who are going into so-called organized communities um, yeah. for like Christmas and Easter okay. um, and like certain hunting and trapping periods mm-hmm. would would kind of be planned around that. Okay. Yeah. So those are just a couple examples. So it just changed like kind of how the family existed. Yes. Did you say yeah. Okay. I would say for sure. One thing that's really interesting is that the Northwest Territories had a program called the Home Management Program. Yeah. So once women graduated high school, they got out of residential school, Grolier, Stringer Hall. Yeah. And then they went into the home. Maybe they wanted to start a family. Maybe they found their sweetheart at their residential school. Yeah. <laughs> and they moved in together. It it totally happened. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, teenagers also got married and had children at at quite an early age when maybe they weren't ready to yeah. as a way to escape the residential school. Yeah. Um, but anyway, they had this home management program that if these women, these Gwich'in and Uvaluit, like northern indigenous women, mm-hmm. um, if the residential schooling hadn't hadn't worked effectively, yeah. that's okay because we have home management and we're now going to come into your homes and tell you how to be a good mother oh, no. and tell you how to cook okay. and tell you how to clean and tell you how to service your husband. Um, wow. That's yes. so kind of them. That Thank was like you. well into the late 1970s. That's insane. Yes. That happened that late it did. Like, yes. Wow. They were also taught to be um, straight. Okay. You know, so yeah. um, no two-spiritedness, mm-hmm. um, you know, LGBTQ, none of that yeah. would have been tolerated. Um, you know, meanwhile, a lot of these kids are being traumatized yeah. and, and assaulted. Mm-hmm. So not really learning what a healthy intimate relationship is in the first place yeah about the two-spirited thing was that like so i know that it was, it's like really popular amongst plenty of indigenous cultures because we're just very welcoming but um like more specifically the gender binaries that like surround it so like girls having to wear skirts and boys having to like cover up their tattoos was that did that change before and after residential schools? Yeah, I I think it did. Like specifically for the Gwich'in, and this is probably noteworthy, is that I've never read anywhere for us to refer to people as two spirits. Okay. Um, so I think that that's maybe like a pan-Indigenous word that yeah. is kind of applied to us. Okay. Um, so I'm not sure what it would have been called for Gwich'in. Like, I think flexibility was just kind of worked into our culture. Yeah. And that way it would have been so normalized that maybe we wouldn't have really called it anything. They would have just been people to us instead of people who have to do it, <laughs> identify yeah. as a certain way. Exactly. Okay. I think really with the introduction of Christian society and yeah. missionaries, like specifically in our region, that would have been about the 1870s, 1880s. Yeah. Um, you know, you see women um, 
like my grandmother, Marka Bullock, um, now wearing a headscarf, wearing long dresses, uh, dressing pretty modestly. Mm -hmm. And actually, if if you go back and look at early... um, like artistic renditions of Gwich'in women. Yeah. We weren't dressed that way. How were we dressed? Um, mostly in skins and, and hides yeah. and stuff like that. Um, but there wasn't really anything especially modest about it. We didn't have to wear head coverings. Yeah. Um, we had these gorgeous facial tattoos, which I, I totally want to get one day. <laughs> um, certainly... In in our own region, I kind of see this resurgence of womanhood yeah. happening right now. For instance, like we elected the first president of the Gwich'in Tribal Council, yes. who is a woman. Um, that was really awesome. Uh, we have all kinds of leaders, um, especially in education. Um, you know, Velma Lisiak, she's the principal of the school in Aklavik. Okay. Um, we have an education superintendent in Inuvik who's Gwich'in. Um, you know, Alistine Andre, who is retiring this fall. She's yes. an anthropologist um, with the Gwich'in Tribal Council. And so I really see, like, all of these great things happening. Um, yeah. However, I do still see, like, um, some women feeling that maybe the home is still kind of their place to be. Yes. Um, I would say, I'm using air quotes here, <laughs> like traditional gender roles. Yeah. But those are like traditional white people gender roles. Yes. Right? To, for the woman to stay home and cook and clean. Yep. Um, so when I say traditional here, I'm not referring to like our indigenous, indigenous traditions. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so what were traditional expressions? Not, I guess not expressions. Like what were the traditional gender roles in indigenous societies? Well, from all of the reading that I've been doing, um, they call it a partnership. Okay. So, I mean, as I mentioned, you might have a family with, like, several wives or several husbands. Yes. Um, many, many children. Lots of children. <laughs> we love children. Um, yeah. <laughs> and basically what would happen is when you're traveling out on the land, especially in the winter, yeah. when you're traveling by dog team, when you're packing a sled, um, you would travel with other families. In- okay in groups into the mountains in order to find the caribou and stuff. Um, There's a great document called the Cope Stories. Mm -hmm. um, And these were interviews that um, a lot of our family members undertook throughout the 1970s and 80s. um, And those memories are kind of cataloged in there. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I would say it was a partnership that it was you know, egalitarian. Um, of course, men had certain jobs. Women had certain jobs. Yeah. It wasn't like super strict. Like only women could put the berries in this. It was very no, fluid. It was very fluid and free. And I mean, uh, once we start to get into the 1950s, 60s yeah. and 70s, where, you know, we're learning um, the ways of, of Unjit of, of white, white people. people. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, you know, kind of these gender confines yeah. are being placed over us. Yeah. Um, but you talk to a lot of people and some some of them were lucky to stay home from re- residential school. Yeah. And uh, I have a cousin, for instance, he stayed home. Yeah. And uh, his siblings were off at school. And 
he was a boy, but because he was the only child at home, he learned how to sew. He learned how to bake. He yeah. he learned how to bead. Um, he delivered babies, right? Yeah. So you kind of just step in wherever you're needed. However, I will say that like when we do talk about our own cultures, yeah. it, it, especially in the context of colonization, yeah. um, we also need to be aware that, you know, historically we weren't perfect. Well, thank you so much, Crystal. This has been great. Yes. Lovely learning about Indigenous feminism and residential schools and how they all tie in together. Masi Cho, <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me. Welcome back to Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. My name is Marco Visconti. I'm Lisa Pruden. And my name is Rose Eva forbes Jenkins. If you're just tuning in, we just finished listening to an interview with Wichuk-Wichin scholar Crystal Fraser about the impact residential schools had on gender relations in the Northwest Territories. And that's it for today's show. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy this episode on Indigenous feminism. Once again, we've been your hosts, Rose Eva Forbes Jenkins, Marco Visconti, and Lisa Pruden. Have an excellent adamant evening. Adam and Eve is a spoken word project of CJSRFM, and our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. We produce this week's show at the CJSR studios in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, on Treaty 6 territory. For more information on our program and to send us any feedback, please check out our website, adamandevecjsr.wordpress.com. We're always looking for more volunteers to help out, so if you're interested in learning any aspect of radio production, just get in touch.